Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Um, how many of you have ever seen um, a fighter jet flyover? <laughs> a, a ball game or an air show or something? Um, do you remember how that feels when they do? That's like, whoa! It's like a mixture of a thrill of excitement and, and wonder at the, sort of the mechanical feat of it and just the visceral, I mean, it's pretty close to fear, like just the level of volume from those jet engines. Um, it's awesome, right? I mean, who doesn't love when there's the flyover? I do. That's a sensation of worship. That feeling that you get when you see fighter jets fly over, that is a kind of feeling, a sense like worship. And I think when we hear the word worship, we should call to mind that bodily experience even more readily than we think of usually just you know, the soft chords of amazing grace or something like that. I believe that's what God is telling us in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, and I actually want to preach this morning really kind of walking through the passage. So um, feel free if you'd like to follow along in your, in your Bible, if you've brought your own, great. Um, there are pew Bibles. Um, you'll need to share probably with a spouse or neighbor. Um, page 1009. The advantage of following um, along in the Bible is that um, it's proof that I'm not making this up, that this is in fact what God is saying. Um, but if you trust me, I, I also appreciate your trust. So Hebrews chapter 12, um, we're beginning um, at, at verse, uh, I think verse 15, but really I'm going to start at verse 18 and we'll go through verse 28, Hebrews chapter 12. So the beginning of this passage, um, the author of the letter to the Hebrews is doing a comparison and a contrast between two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And Mount Sinai, of course, we have recorded that in detail um, in the Torah, in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy of Moses, you know, when he has led the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt, they've crossed through the Red Sea, they're wandering in the wilderness, and very early on in the wandering, God brings them to Mount Sinai, um, on which he will reveal his law to Moses that will be the guiding plumb line and prophecy for the Jewish people uh, for all time. And when he does that, he has this, it's this powerful experience. First of all, there's this command, don't let anybody touch the mountain. Even if a goat touches the mountain, it will die because God is about to show up to Moses on the top of that mountain. And when he does, it's accompanied by these bizarre natural phenomenon. It's described as a, a blazing fire and a dark gloom at the same time. Right? Usually those things would be opposite, right? If there's a blazing fire, it wouldn't be a dark gloom. But the presence of God, it's so glorious and mysterious, and you'll even see this in icons sometimes, when Jesus is portrayed as radial black light and white light, because it's just too much uh, for human senses to take in. There's this blazing fire, rumbling, a, a dark, gloomy cloud, and the sound of trumpets are recorded, and a voice that is so terrifying. Psalm 27 says it's like the sound of many waters that strips the oak trees bare. The voice was so terrifying that the Israelites said, God, don't talk to us directly. We can't handle that. Just talk through Moses and he'll tell us what we need to know. It was so terrifying. So the writer of Hebrews brings to mind all that familiar passage from Exodus and Deuteronomy. 
the Mount Sinai experience. And we're told that we, Christians, were not brought to that mountain. It's kind of a funny thing to like paint this picture and say, yeah, that's, that's not where we are. And obviously, right, we're not standing on a mountain. He says, no, no, we're not on Mount Sinai. We are on Mount Zion. Mount Zion, isn't that in Jerusalem? Hebrews unpacks that it's a metaphor. It's a picture for a spiritual reality. He goes on to describe it um, as in verse 22 here. Look at the second half of verse 22. The heavenly Jerusalem. This is a spiritual reality that when the church gathers, and I think um, biblical scholars believe the book of Hebrews was first a sermon. Um, it takes about 45 minutes to read, so it's, a, it's that kind of a sermon. Um, but in context of what the writer has said about not giving up gathering together and everything else in this chapter, I think it's pretty clear he's talking about when Christians gather to worship. This is like standing on Mount Zion. Right now, we are inside invisible walls of the city of the New Jerusalem. And he's doing this comparison and contrast. When we Christians gather together, we are standing in the kingdom of God. And it says, as it continues in verse 23, that when we gather to worship, right, as, as old Israel did at the base of Mount Sinai, new Israel does on spiritual Mount Zion. It says there are innumerable angels in festal gathering. So the thing I wanted to speak about this morning is worship. And the Bible gives us all these insights into the unseen realm that we do well to bring to mind because the Bible's telling us it's true. That at right now, right now as we're gathered, we are joining innumerable, too many to count, angels who are also devoted to worshiping God. The angels who are so pure and holy themselves, and yet when they are in the presence of God, Isaiah records, they cover their faces with their wings because they're so overawed at the glory of the God that they're worshiping. It says innumerable because the early church interpreted, uh, understood through the sort of little clues that God gives about the angelic realm, that there's tons of angels. That the parable of the lost sheep, where there's the 99 who never strayed and the one who strayed, was universally interpreted as the 99 are the angels who are always in the throne room of God. And the one sheep, that's all of saved mankind. That, that the good shepherd goes to rescue, to bring back into the choirs of worship that gather around God. One of my favorite lines in the liturgy we say every Sunday is, um, together with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we sing, holy, holy, holy. That's why we sang that hymn this morning. The angels, um, the Bible also reveals that churches are given, angels get specific missions to defend and uphold specific churches, right? That's what we see in the letters of the Revelation, to the angel at Philadelphia, to the angel at Laodicea. And the church has always understood that when the church, when Christians gather, when the sons and daughters of the living God gather, angels stand around the gathering to defend it spiritually and to offer those praises to God. Isn't that kind of an exciting thought? That right now in our midst, we can't see him with our eyes. But at least one angel is standing in our midst, defending his church and offering our praises to God. It excites me. Um, not only angels, but look, the passage goes on. You see that phrase, the spirits of the righteous made perfect? This is going to go deep here, but it's true. The Bible's saying it right here. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. That those Christians who have died in the Lord... All those who you know who've died in the Lord, 
who died as Christians, they are right now worshipping God face to face. That's the great joy and the great hope of Christians, that when we die, we get to then, we now walk by faith, then it will be sight. So when we join as living Christians on earth to worship, we're joining in the same activity that those Christians who have died are also doing. That in some mysterious way in the one body of Christ, we are joining the departed saints as well as the angels in worshiping God. Have you ever thought that? Have you, did you know that? It's true. Um, we're in the presence of angels, innumerable. We're in the presence of righteous saints. But even more than that, the object of it all, we are in the presence, the very presence of God. We are in the presence of God. God who is described in verse 23 as the judge of all. That phrase should make every one of us tremble a little bit. The judge of all. The same God who appeared, when he appeared in Sinai, if a goat touched the mountain, it died. That's the same God who Jesus has promised is in our midst when we gather together. Where two or three are gathered in his name, he will be in the midst of them. But unlike Moses, who was just only terrified, right? it says that in Hebrews, our approach to God isn't just terror because of Jesus. And that's what Hebrews goes on to say. It says we come to the presence of God but we have Jesus in verse 24 who's described as the mediator of a new covenant. A covenant that's not based on rules and just ultimately the terror of just judgment. A covenant of mercy. The mediator means broker. He brokered the, the covenant of mercy that we can stand before God and not just be worried about being struck dead, but can have the hope, even the promise of being shown mercy. Jesus himself is the middleman between us and God who is the judge of all. I say middleman. Of course, he's the middle God-man, but he's fully man. He is the one who made this new covenant, sealed it with his own blood, shed on Calvary, blood which Hebrew says is sprinkled. Those of you uh, who know and love your Bibles, does that ring any bells, that word sprinkled? It should from the Old Testament, right? When you... A sacrifice under the Old Testament, when the animal was killed, the animal was brought to the Levitical priests and they sacrificed it either for sin or for peace or for thank offering, whatever it may be. They would take the blood and they would sprinkle it on what needed cleansing. So when it was for atonement, it was sprinkled on the person who needed forgiveness. The sprinkled blood. The writer of Hebrews, after spending the whole book talking about how the sacrifice of Christ has totally trumped and done away with all of the Old Testament temple sacrifices is now taking that imagery, having cl cleared that up. We don't need bulls and goats to be killed for us anymore. We have the once for all ultimate sacrifice. And in a spiritual way, that blood is sprinkled on us. He's now having laid the ground for how we can rightly understand the Old Testament. That it's a spiritual picture of Jesus' sacrifice. The blood that is sprinkled to spiritually cleanse. And when we gather, look at verse 25. When I first read this in preparation for this morning, it said, do not refuse him who is speaking. I'm like, well, I guess they've got to listen to the preacher. And then I realized it's not about the preacher at all. <laughs> Much thanks be to God. The command here is, do not refuse him who is speaking. The him is Jesus. It's the Jesus who's in our midst when two or three are gathered. When Jesus speaks to you through his word, when he speaks to you, hopefully sometimes through the sermon, when he speaks to you 
mystically, directly to your spirit in prayer or through the Holy Communion, do not refuse him who is speaking. Listen to him. When we gather as the church to worship, in light of all that we are in the presence of, our response should be more like a flyover, right? Right now, angels, the, saint, the souls of the righteous worshiping God, the presence of God the judge, the presence of our great mediator is in our midst. You know, <laughs> that's how it should be. We should recognize in our spirits what we're doing when we come to church. That's why it says in verse 28, let us offer to God then acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Those words aren't just sort of, yeah, you're supposed to have those things. It's like, if you realize what's happening, you will have those things. Reverence and awe. So I hold those two words up for you to think about inhabiting um, when we come to worship. You know, a lot of you folks I know are, are newly exploring the Anglican tradition. And one of the things that sticks out right away is all these little gestures. Right? People will walk by the altar and they'll make a little, a little bow sometimes. Or people will come out of their pew and they'll take a knee. You know, people will make a sign of the cross. What's, what is all this? They're gestures of reverence. They're just ways of doing in our body what we believe is true in our souls, that we are in a holy space, gathered with holy people, in the presence of a holy sacrament that the Holy One Himself has instituted. So let's do these gestures. Not that material things are, like, uh, are the object. God is the object. But with these bodily gestures, we're, we're communicating even to our own spirits, um, our own spirit that we are, are here to revere here to reveal the God who's in our midst. So I invite you to reconsider what it is we've come here to do this morning as every Sunday. We've come to worship God. How do we worship God acceptably? That's the word there. Worship God, offer him acceptable worship in reverence and awe. I've talked about the reverence and awe, and I want to talk about the acceptable bit. Um, I have like a thesis that I want to offer you, that worship, sort of like the sacraments, has both an inside, an internal, and an external aspect. And that both of these things, the inner aspect and the outer aspect, they are both made acceptable by God himself. So how do we offer acceptable worship? We don't. God is the one who makes it acceptable. Here's what I mean. Um, the inner part of worship is what is happening in here during the worship time. That when we offer to God out of our hearts, out of our wills, uh, when, we, when we say the words of the liturgy and mean them, even a little bit, we, we never mean words fully because we're scattered, divided creatures. But even just to mean it a little bit, to with the will, and it's the big difference between saying, Hosanna in the highest, and Hosanna in the highest. It's not about inflection, it's not even about emotion, it's about your will, yeah. Hosanna in the highest. Sometimes some of you here may have had a horrible week, and it won't be Hosanna in the highest. It'll be Hosanna in the highest. God is still to be praised, even despite the week I've had. Some of you have had a great week, and it'll be easy to say Hosanna in the highest. Great. The emotions aren't the peace, but the heart is the peace. To really mean what we say, great is the Lord. All these exclamations of praise, we begin, blessed be God. We say all the time, Alleluia, which is Hebrew for praise be to God. Praise the Lord. To say these things and mean them from a humble heart that's grateful. Did you see how verse, is it verse 24? 
um, says, verse 28, uh, thanksgiving, offer with thanks. A humble heart that's thankful for what God has done and, and to mean these words from our own heart. Here's the amazing thing. Um, each one of you, including me, uh, are sinners. And here we are, sinners, offering to God praise. Glory to you. How is a perfect God honored by these broken vessels saying, God, you're awesome? Like if an ant would appraise me, I wouldn't be like, oh, wow, now that's great. Thank you so much. You know? How is it made acceptable? Because each of you Christians have the Holy Spirit living within you. The Holy Spirit himself is the one nudging your heart to worship. The reason you're even here this morning isn't because you're just an innately virtuous person, although many of you are very good. It's because the Holy Spirit stirred you to come and worship God again. He planted that, that thought deep in your mind at some level. It's the Holy Spirit you know, who goes before us for all of our deeds that serve the Lord. And it's the Holy Spirit who takes this frail, broken, half-hearted, blessed be God. And it's the Holy Spirit who, who renders that sacrifice of praise acceptable to God. God himself, this is the, the wondrous thing. God is Trinity, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God the Spirit in each of us is taking our praises to God the Father. We're just swept up in it. That's the inward part of worship, the Spirit sanctifying what we bring with our hearts. The outer part, um, in order to understand, we actually have to dig deep into the text. Look at verse 28, if you're looking at it. Um, that verse that I began with. Let us offer to God acceptable worship. The word worship there um, has, a, has an exclusively priestly, sacrificial quality to it. The Greek word is latruo. And it's used earlier in Hebrews to describe Old Testament sacrifices done by the priest. Which is sort of surprising because all of Hebrews has been about how the gift of Christ on the cross has done away with all the Old Testament sacrifices. And now that same word is being used, offer to God a priestly sacrificial worship. How is that possible? I've lost my place. Ah. What is there, what is there to offer to God that Christ hasn't already offered? We can't bring a lamb or a bull or a goat. That's been done away with. We ourselves are sinful creatures. Nothing we could do could ever satisfy God that came out just from us. So what is there to offer God that Christ hasn't already offered? Nothing. Christ is all we could ever need. He's the only acceptable offering to the Father. That's why we actually drill this in. If you listen to the Eucharistic prayer, we're, we're kind of honing in on the same theme on a couple of different ways. Then remember that phrase? The one oblation of himself once offered as the perfect oblation, satisfaction, and propitiation for the sins of the... Right? We're just drilling in. There's only one sacrifice, and it was Christ on Calvary 2,000 years ago. That's the only thing needed to please God. The only thing by which our worship is acceptable, and yet we are told to offer a sacrificial worship to God. What can we offer? Oh, look, Jesus gave us a memorial sacrifice. So I want to be really clear here. There is only one sacrifice in the Christian religion that is worth anything. Christ on the cross on Calvary. But when we commemorate his sacrifice, 
in the same way that the Jews in the Old Covenant, or in a similar way as the Jews in the Old Covenant, would continue to eat the Passover bread year after year to remember and make present to themselves the reality that they'd been released from the bondage of Egypt, and they were, in fact, still released. In a similar way, the Eucharist that the Lord instituted is a memorial sacrifice. In the, if, some, if a general wins a war um, and you make a statue of the general, you could point to the statue and say, that's the general. And of course, it's not the general, but it's a statue of the general. It's showing forth the general. This meal shows forth the sacrifice of Calvary. It's a memorial sacrifice. It's the one external thing we can offer. We can say, with the bread and the wine, Lord, Lord God, we plead before you the only sacrifice that will cleanse us, the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. And we, through this bread and this wine, and this is the mystery of the Eucharist, through this bread and this wine, through this liturgy, through this receiving of the bread and the wine, we ask to be sprinkled afresh for the mercy and merit of Calvary to be present to us in this room together on August 25th, 2019, again. This, in this way, this is the wonderful mystery of the Eucharist is that we, as the people of God, are in a spiritual way presenting Christ to the Father, saying, Lord, put his blood between us and our sins. This is our true worship. Only the Son could really praise the Father. But guess what? You're the body of Christ. You're in the Son. You're with the Son by Him and with Him and in Him. In the unity of the Holy Spirit that unites us together. All glory and praise is to you, Father Almighty. Do you recognize those words? That's the end of the liturgy, right? The theology of our liturgy Literally, it blows my mind, it just in consecutive mind blows every six months. It's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing what we do every Sunday. It should be like a flyover. This is, we're presenting the sacrifice of Calvary in a spiritual way, afresh to the Father, and not just getting sprinkled with the blood, but getting to receive the living presence of Christ himself afresh into our hearts. Feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. I think this is what is in view. It's interesting, um, those of you who study the Bible know that we have these, all these manuscripts through all the ages. And you know, one of the work of biblical scholars is trying to piece through, okay, which manuscripts are the most reliable? And, and we understand, and I believe with a whole heart that our translation of the Bible is a full and accurate presentation of what was first written by the prophets and apostles. It is the very words of God, unaltered. It, in God's mercy, it's been preserved and handed down to us. Um, and what's amazing is we can kind of see in later like medieval manuscripts and things, sometimes scribes make these little errors and we can, it's pretty easy to tell like, oh, he just misheard that word. We got an older manuscript, we know what the word was, right? Some of, in the manuscripts, man, I'm really going down a rabbit hole here. Um, but in the manuscripts, some scholars accidentally wrote Eucharist in this passage in the Greek, because it, it was so, it brought forth so many memories of what we do in communion. They, they wrongly wrote the Greek word Eucharist. Okay, this was a rabbit trail. I didn't mean to go down. Um, what I'm trying to say is that what we do in this memorial sacrifice, uh, if we understand it even a little, should call us forth to reverence and awe. Reverence and awe. Why, why do we kneel at communion? as an act of reverence. Now, you don't have to kneel. Some of you can't physically. That's okay. It's not a, it's not a must. But it's a, just a gesture of, 
reverence and awe. I've said it before and I'll say it again because I love it. St. Cyril of Jerusalem in the 4th century says, When you receive communion, put your right hand in your left as if to make a throne on which to receive the Lord Jesus your King. He knew what it meant to come with reverence and awe. It's why, um, as Anglicans, we cherish and preserve all these pieces of the liturgy because they nudge us towards reverence and awe. Um, I want to say, lastly, just as a sort of PS, as a little postscript. Given all this, how can we miss church? I've never liked it when... um, well, actually, it should never happen. When preachers should never shame people. <laughs> sometimes I've been, I felt like sometimes I've had my knuckles slapped about, get to church, and I'm like, oh, yes, yes, I need to go. It's, it's all flipped around the wrong way. If you see what church is, with innumerable angels, choirs of saints, the presence of God, the sprinkling of the blood of Christ afresh, who would who'd want to miss that? <laughs> Unless you're sick and can't make it. Um, if the leader of a nation, if the leader of our nation, invited you over, you'd make that appointment. (laughs) The leader of the cosmos is inviting us to this appointment. To worship God, the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to whom be all glory and honor and power and praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen.